For September 21st, this is Ballot Box, the Pointers coverage of the 2021 Canadian federal election. Reporting today, Sam Graywall. Hi, everyone. We are pleased today, uh, after the election, to have with us political scientist Chris Cochran. He is a professor at the University of Toronto, and he is going to break down a lot of the results and moving forward, what Canadians need to see from this parliament, from the next government, to achieve what Canadians want, the specific policies that we, we will need to see enacted to get Canada, you know, where citizens want to take it. Chris, thanks so much. And yeah, your your thoughts on last night and the results this morning. Well, I, I thought initially the call of the election was never well explained. And I think the results last night reaffirmed that it was, as others have mentioned, a, an unnecessary election and a bad-timed election and, of course, a costly one. And so we're, we're back to status quo in Parliament, and the parties are, as they all know, going to have to find a way to continue to work together, frankly, as they had been before the election, in order to get Canada out of the pandemic and then into a recovery. Chris, do you think Canadians had enough time? One of the things when I'm I'm looking at some of the data this morning, some of the the results, and in my mind, you know, thinking about a few things, but also comparing it, the results to 2019. And one of the patterns that I've noticed is, it seems to me that Canadians might not have had enough time, or they weren't put in the right situation to actually make a different decision. Essentially, you know, when you look at how similar the voting patterns were, you know, the results, you know, some changes, but, you know, when you look at the broad strokes, the top line results, it's quite rare from one election to another to see so much similarity, almost a mirror image. And do you think it's perhaps because Canadians simply weren't given a proper campaign to differentiate from 2019. You know, you had a different leader with the Conservatives. You had a few other different dynamics. You had the pandemic. But I wonder, was was part of this result a byproduct of Canadians didn't have time to familiarize them, themselves with the platforms, to learn about some of the other candidates, to really look into like how people were nominated, to really get into the meat of what you know, forms the personality and identity of a particular election. You know, in this case, it seems to me people were like, wait a second, I just got my kids to school. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of work stuff to deal with. I didn't even have time to look at who the candidates were. Oh, I guess I'll just do the same thing I did last time around two years ago. Yeah, I think that's a very good observation. People, uh, you know, we've been in a pandemic, obviously, where everyone is focused on, you know, a lot of people focused on getting by and and struggling to do that or worried about, you know, whether their business is going to be able to weather the storm or whether they're going to keep their job or how they're going to homeschool their kids. And people are preoccupied just muddling through and, and trying to get by. So there wasn't the sort of leisure of being able to sit back and spend our time thinking about politics and learning about the politicians. We just expected government to govern as we should in these sorts of circumstances. And then on top of that, we go into the shortest election campaign allowed by law, an election campaign where the English language debate in particular was widely seen to have been 
a bit of a disaster in terms of giving the parties an opportunity to actually not just state sound bites that they had prepared, but to go into depth and explain what their vision was for the country. And then uh, people had to vote. And it's not at all a surprise to me that they ended up voting effectively the same way that they did before. And all of the parties, of course, will find things, the positives in, in the result that they, they got, maybe except for the Greens. But I think there's a lot of negatives there as well for all of them. And uh, I suspect they'll uh, take heed of that as well. And the bottom line is that the parliamentarians, it's a minority government. They need to find a way to, to work together to govern. And that's uh, the key point, uh, you know, not campaigning for the next election or trying to win a majority government or trying to always get the one up and embarrass each other, but actually to craft policies that get this country through one of the most difficult moments in its history. And our campaign didn't reflect that. It, this was not a campaign that had the air of a turning point in Canadian political history. It was a campaign that looked just about like every other campaign with the parties trying to score rather cheap political points against one another. We saw early on in the campaign talk about, for example, the conservatives criminalizing abortion, which, of course, they're never going to do. And, uh, you know, even the issues of guns, I thought, was extremely peripheral to the, the big fundamental issues that face this country at this moment in time. Chris, I want to pick up on something quickly that you addressed, the English language debate. For someone like yourself, you know, you're, you're a policy person. When, when you write on, say, an issue like immigration, you go very deep into, okay, what, what are the labor needs economically? Like, how can we align immigration policy to meet you know, the, the needs of various industry sectors, you know, all of the provinces? You're going to take a look at family reunification and what needs to be done there. So a very policy-minded type of approach from academics such as yourself. Electors want the same. Good democratic functioning means that an informed electorate is making decisions based on which party is going to bring in the types of policies that will get us better childcare, address the affordable housing problem, get the economy performing to the you know the maximum capability of of all of like our phenomenal canadian labor force and whatnot when you look at the debate what can we do first of all we obviously need more than one we had two french language ones but i'm talking about the english language debates so obviously we could use more than more than one but but what do you think could be done with the debate process to shift the way the electorate engages with campaigns, to turn it into more of a policy conversation that leads to a decision toward the type of government that is going to achieve the things that people need to make their lives better. Yeah, I mean, there's an old adage, I guess, in, in sort of political circles that voters don't vote on policies. They vote on party identification or leader personalities and and aren't interested in, you know, again, in abstract of, of sort of delving deep into policies. And I'm not sure that that's, that that's true, even if a too policy focused leader might not, uh, might not ultimately succeed in, a, in an election. But I think the, you know, when you have a debate format where the leaders are yelling over each other, for example, which we have long had in, in Canada, where people just interrupt and shout things from, from their side and where we move from topic to topic to topic. It just uh, invites the shallowest answers 
and talking points that everybody has already heard before. And at best, we can try to make some sort of judgment about what the personality disposition of his leader is by the way that they comported themselves in the debate. But we don't learn anything about their campaigns or their their broad vision, again, other than these sort of top line messages. So even, you know, if we mentioned a, a discussion of immigration, for example, I mean, it's it's framed as a you know, a sort of a pro and con issue. There's no serious discussion ever in a Canadian election campaign about the point system, for example, and whether the system currently in place is the one we ought to be using and what the pros and cons are of different alternative systems. When it comes to something like childcare, for instance, there, I mean, it has been some discussion of that. And I know advocates of childcare certainly are, are happy to see that. But when it comes to a serious discussion about different models of childcare, and the Conservatives had one plan, which essentially would give money to parents and allow them to make a decision about how to spend that money. The Liberals have a different plan, which is a universal $10 a day daycare system like exists in Quebec now. But what are the pros and cons of those different systems? Who stands to gain and, and lose from them? And what does it look like in the future? I mean, there's the the issue of not having any policy discussions at all and, and really not seeming to have any party trying to model itself as an excellent government, which presumably Canadians uh, want to elect as a, as a high priority. But there's also the issue of focusing everything on short timeframes, you know, four years, five years, what's, what's in stock between now and the next election. And that's been a challenge on a number of issue fronts, particularly, for instance, uh, climate change, which isn't a three or four year issue. It's a long term issue, but demanding immediate action. But again, the results of those immediate actions won't appear until the future. Things like uh, levels of government spending, the discussion of governments being able to just sort of spend as they want without it having any consequences down the line. You know, again, that's just not the case. It'll be the consequences down the line will be in the form of higher taxation or less spending available to people in the future. So I think all of these debates get distilled to a few talking points, things that resonate with people's pre-existing ideological convictions. And the notion that the political leaders would ever be in a position where they sat down and had a calm, deliberate, in-depth conversation about their various policy proposals seems almost far frets, frankly, given the state of the campaigning and uh, even the governing to some degree that we've seen in Canada over the last many years. And again, picking up on a couple of things that you said, perhaps a format that was more set up as a town hall. So remove all of the candidates but one, having sort of a a series of these forums, perhaps citizens, the electorate, they are the ones who pose the questions. You have one candidate at a time, you know, spaced out through the campaign, answering these very detailed questions like, you know, okay, Mr. Trudeau, you say you're going to reduce our internet and cell phone bills. Explain exactly what you're going to do. Why didn't you do it six years ago? Why have you constantly defended Bell and Rogers? Why haven't you let American competition come in and have that be the obvious solution to to these ridiculous internet and cellular phone bills that Canadians pay? We need some way to create a policy conversation and, and remove, as you said, this polemic kind of pugilistic debate format from from the equation. And speaking of policy, again, what would be some of your feelings about how we should keep Mr. Trudeau's feet to the fire now? Okay, you've talked about reducing emissions targets by 40 to 45 percent. 
Tell us what that's going to look like. Are you going to finally take a firm position on pipelines? What are you going to do about banks and the financial sector, the the investment class that underwrites and basically promotes the tar sands and carbon extraction in the fossil fuel industry because it keeps investing in it? You know, what are you going to do about electric vehicles? I mean, we could look at almost all of the big, like you said, with childcare, looking at all of those models and, and asking real questions about, okay, who would benefit? Who, who would be disadvantaged? What are some of the real policy conversations that you will be watching for now? Uh, and I just want to add one little thing. A problem with our approach now is when we don't allow the public to set the policy agenda, for example, through an election campaign, guess who ends up doing it? Lobbyists, <laughs> the oil industry, Rogers, Air Canada, Bell, you name it. They're the ones, you know, the committee process where a lot of the heavy lifting, it's not going to be the electorate and citizens dictating that process. It's going to be outside parties, third parties, lobbyists lobby groups, special interest groups through the committee structure that in the absence of these policy conversations during campaigns, when parliament resumes, it'll be the same old, same old with the power structures controlling a lot of the legislating. But your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's um, certainly a challenge for governments in general to enact policies that provide small benefits to a great many people at the expense of, you know, removing large benefits to a smaller group of people. The smaller groups are usually more organized and can punch above their weight. And so when you think of something like, for example, you know, cell phone bills and the fact that Canadians pay considerably higher rates than publics in many other comparable countries, of course, one of the things that will always come up is the need to have a domestic telecommunications industry, which has been around since the first radio waves, frankly. And so this kind of you know nationalistic protectionism has some benefits for Rogers, obviously, and the main telecom companies and the people who work for them, and also ensures that Canada has a domestic industry, but it does come at a cost in the terms of higher prices and so on. And historically, that's been the, the effort to try to manage this trade-off has been done through the Canadian Radio and Telecommunications Commission. But it's, you know, one of the difficulties that organization has had is is sort of managing its relevance at a time of just incredible technological growth and um, the fact that internet, television, telephone, all of it is now so interconnected that it's been it's been very difficult for them to to sort of manage. On the environmental front, uh, you're exactly right that I think it's on the one hand disingenuous to tell people that we're going to make as a country major emissions reductions and incur no costs in in doing so. And on the other hand, uh, I think it's uh, similarly disingenuous to say that we can actually achieve these targets without really doing that much at all. And so for the, the current government, the liberal government, in order to meet their initiatives, quite apart from finding money to incentivize electric vehicles and investing in infrastructure and transit infrastructure, which they are able to do directly with cities and working with the provinces, but it's going to require a carbon tax and uh, and a potentially much steeper carbon tax. It's already uh, scheduled to increase. So the prices of goods are going to go up. And again, this is as far as I can tell, the only way we would be able to meet those targets, but it's certainly going to be something that 
Canadians will eventually feel. You know, the rebates will help offset the costs for many Canadians. But with inflation, rising cost of living and other things, it's certainly not going to be cost free for Canada to meet its um, its emissions target. So I think the government is very well positioned currently and were even before the election to just implement these policies. They didn't certainly need the election in order to do it. And and now, I mean, I don't envision that they're going to have any difference, you know, whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage in implementing their agenda. They still have to abide by parliamentary wishes on things like ethics investigations. They won't be able to shut those things down. But as we've seen over the course of the pandemic, Parliament can legislate. The Liberals can get things done with the support of opposition parties. And this election notwithstanding, they're going to continue to be able to do that if they choose to do so for the next, let's say, at least 18 months. All right, Chris, the only punditry I want to engage in is a question about how long you think this government will hold. Do you see like a true four-year term or do you think it's inevitable that Canadians are, God forbid, going to be going back to the polls, you know, in the next couple of years or whenever it might be? Yeah, I don't I don't think it will last uh, four years. I think two years would be about my estimate. Uh, but it will depend on what happens with the other parties as well. And if the Conservatives replace Aaron O'Toole as leader, which is a possibility, then the Conservatives obviously won't be in a position to want to go to an election right away. But a new leader who's, you know, shiny and, and sort of given an opportunity to introduce himself may decide that they, they really want an election. And then obviously it would come down to whether the Liberals can work with the New Democrats in order to prevent that from happening. But my guess is we're, we're probably two years or so away from another election. All right. I want to thank Chris Cochran for his keen insights. Chris, again, is a political scientist with the University of Toronto. Thanks for taking out so much of your time during this election campaign to help us out uh, on Ballot Vox. And for all of our listeners, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the format for Ballot Vox. We're going to transition eventually into more of a focus on next year's provincial election and next year's municipal election. So stay tuned. We'll let you know what's in store for Ballot Vox. But again, Chris, thanks so much. Thank you, Zen. And to everyone else, thank you, and we'll talk to you soon. Ballot Box was hosted by Stan Graywall, produced by Anukul Thacker, and yours truly. Stay tuned for details on upcoming coverage on future elections. I'm Jeff Chalmers. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.